So I love mindfulness because people are doing it all the time. If you're washing your dishes and you're just feeling the warm water, smelling the soap, you're feeling the sponge on your hands, you're looking at the colors of the plates, that's using mindfulness. You're just grounding yourself in the present moment. Just notice and observe thoughts and kind of just let them come in and let them go out. I'm Lindsay. I'm here to teach you proven strategies to be your own therapist that will take you from anxious to relieved. I'm here to help you feel lighter and hopeful while building a life full of meaning. I'm a licensed anxiety therapist running a successful private practice in New York City. So from someone that gives therapy and has been in therapy, I'm here to help you use the formula that moved me forward through serious anxiety in my own life. So follow along as I share what works and what doesn't. This is Unlock Your Therapy. Hello and welcome back to the Unlock Your Therapy podcast. This is session number four. I'm your host, Lindsay Hutner, located here in Queens, New York City. It is a hot, hot July day here, but I'm not complaining because I love the summer. Even more is that we had thunderstorms roll through before, which I also love. My dog, King, who's sitting next to me, not a fan. He was shaking like a leaf. I had to wrap him up in a blanket, but he survived. So yeah, it's a beautiful day here. And today we're going to dive into all kinds of really interesting topics. They kind of run the gamut. So first, we're going to go over high and low of the week, where I just share some personal life stuff with you all about things that went well this week for me, things that didn't go as great for me, and I just like to share a little bit about me. Next after that is anxiety, where we're going to cover a bit of a controversial topic this week that gets into blood testing. You're going to have to listen to find out what that's all about. Then up next is skill of the week. We are covering probably the biggest foundational skill you need to have in life if you're human and how most people think that they don't have this skill or ability to develop this skill or they're not good at it. And I'm here to challenge that. And I challenge it all day long with my clients and anyone I talk to that wants to talk about it. So stay tuned for the skill of the week. It's going to be a deep dive into it today. Then we are going to segue right from the skill of the week into the action item of the week, which is directly related to that. And the action item this week is going to be a little different where I'm not going to really tell you the punchline, so to speak, of what your assignment is. I'm going to tell you the assignment, but I'm not going to tell you why necessarily you're doing it or what we're going to follow up with next week. So that's going to be a little twist on the homework today. So high and low. So my high this week was absolutely yesterday. I took Carson to the beach. He's so funny. He's three and he's a bit of a homebody. Like when we go on vacation, 
he asks for his blue house all the time. Where's my blue house? Where's the blue house? We went to Maryland shortly after Everett was born, like in the beginning of the spring. And as soon as we got like an hour and a half into driving, like we were somewhere in Jersey, he started crying and wanted to know where his blue house was. And he wanted to go back to his blue house. And it just broke my heart. So I'm not sure what we're doing for vacation this summer because he is really such a homebody. So anyway, that's just a tangent, but that is related because I've had a hard time getting him to go to the beach with me this week. So when I finish work, Dan comes home around three because he's teaching summer school. And when he comes in, he's super tired because he has to go there early and it's a hot, long day for him of teaching kids. So he usually wants to just chill at home with the baby. And I usually take Carson out somewhere fun. But he has not wanted to leave the house. He just wants to stay home and play with his toys. I think he also just wants to stay around Papa. That's what he calls Dan because he doesn't see him all day because he goes to work and he just like loves Dan so much. So that might be part of it. But finally... He was in a good mood yesterday and I was able to convince him to come with me to the beach and we drove out to Sunken Meadow, which is the North Shore of Long Island for anyone that's not familiar. And I used to work right near there at Northport VA and I used to go there all the time. But now that I don't work out there, we go there like once a year and I love it so much, but there was a lot of traffic. It took us like a little over an hour to get there. Carson fell asleep in the car, (laughs) but when we got there, he was a little hesitant of the water. He saw a playground. He wanted to go to the playground instead of the beach, but with some coaxing, he was totally into it. Once we got down to the water, once I was able to get him to come like deeper into the water with me, he just was pure joy. Like he had the best time and he was so happy and excited the whole time we were there. He was a really good listener, which is not always the case. And he was just, it was magical. It was such a nice time. So I really, really loved that. I want to do it again. Today there was thunderstorms, so we didn't go today, but maybe tomorrow. I don't know. We'll see. The low of the week is I'm still just struggling with tonsillitis or whatever it is me and Dan caught. And we were both very sick for two weeks. Now it's going on three weeks and I still have these flare-ups of my tonsils, I guess, and my ears and it's super painful and all my other illness symptoms are gone, but my throat, tonsils, and my ears are really struggling. So that's my low. I don't know. I feel like I need to see an ENT or something. Seems like it's still very much a problem. So. That's just a little hiccup of my week, but my voice has gotten a little better, so I'm happy for that. Diving into anxiety, where we talk about a hot topic in mental health. So I was reading an article on Al Jazeera, and the article was from November 2021, but this was really the first I've seen it or heard about it. So the article is about blood tests that they have come up with for mental health diagnoses. It was in-depth and very detailed and medical jargon, but essentially they 
have pinpointed some RNA and DNA markers for depression and bipolar disorder possibly. And they might try to use that to help with medication and to help diagnose people through blood work, especially people who maybe come from cultures that don't recognize mental health disorders or may not exactly know what's going on. They present with a lot of physical symptoms to a doctor's office and they have a mental health disorder going on. So the blood tests, you know, the article was arguing that it will be helpful to have a medical blood test like this to take away the stigma, to show it's a medical disorder happening to somebody and it'll help people really buy in and feel like this is legit. So, you know, I'm of two minds on that. I think we don't necessarily need that when we can listen to someone, what's going on for them. It's very individualized what's going on for people. It really has to take into not just biology and, you know, maybe what they're predisposed to, what's going on for them with their cortisol and adrenaline and all of that, but also their perceived stress. Like I talked about in last week's episode, your perceived stress, you could have the same thing happen to someone else and your perception of that event is different and that affects your mental well-being. So I don't think a blood test can tell someone where they're at mentally and what's going on for them exactly. Of course, I know MRI studies and CAT scans and they've shown a lot on brain imaging of that they can see differences in people's brains from having depression to a brain that doesn't have depression. I think that's very helpful. I think that does give buy-in for people to see, wow, there's something different happening in my brain. I understand that and that's helpful to understand. But I don't think it's the end-all be-all. And I think, you know, saying that we need that to justify mental health, I think can be problematic. And I think it's very individualized. The article did say, that nothing has happened yet. Like you can't go to the doctor right now and get a blood test for this, but that it's individualized and this is just a factor and a component. And they're not sure this can really be applied to like anyone can walk in and get a blood test and find out if they have depression or not. And I don't think that will ever happen. And then on a related note, I think it just brings up the question of diagnosis. I think for depression bipolar disorder and different things of that nature. It's a a bit different. I think medication is extremely helpful for those disorders. And diagnosis is important to get properly medicated and the proper therapy and all of that. But, you know, like I tell my clients that come to me with anxiety or whatever it is they're struggling with, I think a diagnosis is not helpful because I think people fuse with that notion of, oh, I have an anxiety disorder and they become like that becomes part of their identity instead of I meet this list of symptoms. Yes, technically I have this anxiety disorder, but let's say you improve or next week you're doing better and you no longer meet the six you know symptoms on the eight symptom checklist you meet five of them, right? Okay, so next week you don't have the disorder and this week you do. So it's very subjective. Mental health diagnosis, I give people diagnoses for health insurance reasons for people to use their insurance. Or if they need, you know, accommodations, of course, it's very helpful for schools, for lots of different reasons people need diagnoses and it does inform a lot of services for people, et cetera. But 
I think when people just are curious and they want to know what they have and this and that, I think they get too wrapped up in that because, you know, half of America meets criteria for a mental health disorder at one point or another in their life. Is that a disorder or is it a natural reaction to your circumstances that are going on for you? If you're under extreme stress, the body does react. It dumps adrenaline and cortisol into the system. It may not be a disorder, but a response to extreme stress. I think that's a little different and we can think about it differently. But I think people get wrapped up in a disorder. What's wrong with me? It's really that medical model. Anyway, I could go on and on about this for a while, but I just think there's some food for thought around diagnosis. And if you need one or not, does it matter at all? Or can we treat these symptoms together and move forward? And we don't need the label. We don't need all of that jargon. It's very subjective. So I think if we work on it, then you no longer meet the diagnosis. That's the goal. I think the diagnosis, it's just words. I don't know. Unless you need it for something that's important, then I'm totally on board. And I'm talking more about anxiety here, acute stress disorder. I'm not talking about like schizophrenia or more serious disorders where, you know, medication really is the treatment for that. And of course, a diagnosis influences what kind of medication you prescribe somebody. And that's based on research and that's different. Anyway, those are just my thoughts on the article about blood tests. And then that just got me really thinking about diagnoses as well. I created something brand new, the No More People Pleasing mini course. I help women to stop people pleasing and put themselves first without the guilt. What would life look like if you could stop asking your partner to order food for you in a restaurant or ask your boss for that raise you're long overdue for? I'm going to teach you four proven strategies, research proven strategies that's going to bring you from people-pleasing and passive to empowered and confident. You're gonna use my outline, my scripts, my beautifully designed PDFs to get the exact skills you need to become more assertive in your life. I'm gonna teach you four skills through my videos and worksheets that's gonna bring you to a place of confidence and being assertive in your life. You're gonna get my beautifully designed self-esteem daily journal to print out, my practice assignments to start changing your mindset and your behaviors. If you sign up now before I launch, you can get it for $29. That's the lowest it will ever be. And I'm giving everyone who signs up now a bonus gift. So go to at Unlock Your Therapy on Instagram, click the link in my bio to get on the list. Let's jump into skill of the week. So skill of the week is going to be mindfulness. Now hear me out. Maybe some of you are rolling your eyes. Maybe some of you are, you know, have heard this topic before. You're not into it. You're not feeling like you're good at it. You tried it once. It didn't work for you. Mindfulness is a very hot topic right now. It's kind of everywhere and overused. And But maybe some of you have never heard of it because a lot of times I talk to people and they're like, no, I've never heard of that. So mindfulness simply, well, actually, let me tell you a story. So I was first introduced to mindfulness 
when I was like 22 or 23, I was actually introduced to it earlier. I just didn't know that's what it was called. When I was in therapy in college for my extreme anxiety, I was introduced to mindfulness through my therapist. She had me do breathing exercises. She taught me muscle relaxation, progressive muscle relaxation, and did all those exercises with me. She didn't, you know, go into detail of, oh, this is mindfulness and all of that, but that's what it was. So that was my first exposure to it. It was extremely helpful. I guess my second exposure to it was when I was 22 or 23. I just got my master's in social work. I started my first social work job, official job with my degree. And I was taking this training every week in dialectical behavioral therapy. That's not important. But I would go to this training every week at like 9 a.m. I had to be in a different office and go for it. And I enjoyed the training, but they started the training every week with like a 15-minute mindfulness exercise. And a different team member would lead the mindfulness exercise, and they were all different activities. Um, So the purpose of mindfulness is to get you to be in the present moment without judgment. So they would be all different activities. One would be like, let's coloring, right? Like we're just in the moment, we're coloring in a worksheet with crayons. Another one could be like a deep breathing exercise. One was like chair yoga, all different things. And I used to hate it. I literally would be like, what is the point of this? I have about 100 emails to check. I have six home visits to make today. I don't have time to just be sitting here, you know, doing these mindfulness exercises. So (laughs) it took me literally weeks, if not months, before I really got the hang of it and was like, oh, I get it. It was kind of too abstract for me at the time. I was like, I don't understand like the purpose of being in the moment and non-judgmentally and observing our thoughts and like, what are they talking about? But after a while, it, it did click and I was like, oh, this is so helpful. Like, I really feel like I'm grounded in my day because I started out with this mindfulness exercise in this meeting. And I was able to connect my mind and my body together. I was able to give myself a few moments and just connect with myself and just be in the moment. So it was extremely helpful. So that was an interesting exercise. That that was my first, you know, real exposure to it and knowing what it was. So anyway, some background. Mindfulness, it's the foundation for really any therapy that's done. Because no matter what the therapy is, there's always grounding exercises that you do with the person. And that's essentially just helping them connect to the present moment through their breath, through calming their body down, naming three things you hear, three things you see, three things you smell. All of that is grounding yourself in the present moment, which is mindfulness. You're just tethering yourself to the present moment. And we're all in the present moment right now. I mean, it's an abstract concept to think about but it's extremely helpful if we can utilize it. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about the history of mindfulness. So mindfulness comes from Buddhism, and it ended up in the U.S. in a number of ways. So really, it started to become popular in the 1960s. Trade increased with Asia, and a lot of pamphlets came over about Buddhism and books and a lot more information started to come across about mindfulness, 
Buddhism, Zen, a lot of things like that started to trickle in. It wasn't popular yet, but then a Buddhist monk named Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm saying his name correctly, um, he was exiled from Vietnam and he became very popular here because he was a speaker, an activist. He was against the war. He wrote a famous book. I forget the name of it. Something Mindfulness, Miracle, the Miracle of Mindfulness, something like that. And then he went on to write like over a hundred books, but that was his popular one that he was known for. Then the Dalai Lama became very popular, another Buddhist monk, and Oprah gave him a platform and really helped him become famous. So that's how more information came through about it. So that's how it gained some popularity then. And then later on, John Kabat-Zinn, who is like my guru, just in my mind, (laughs) he was a student at MIT. He was introduced to meditation, mindfulness, through a Zen missionary, and he went on to study it at the Insight Meditation Center, which was developed by a group of therapists that had exposure to these teachings during their travels and through all different Buddhism teachings and fell in love with mindfulness and how how helpful it could be when applied to therapy. So they opened up the Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And so John Kabat-Zinn studied there. He studied with Thich Nhat Hanh. So he really took all of these teachings of mindfulness. And then he went on to get his doctorate in molecular biology or something. And in, I think, 1979, he started what's one of the most famous studies on mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. And that was at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. It was an eight-week course that he really made accessible to everybody. So he kind of stripped it away from any religious notions, anything like that, so that it could be kind of more digested by the general population. And he really wanted to go to hospitals because he said hospitals were a a magnet for suffering. There's like a Buddhist word for that, but you know, they're a magnet for people who are suffering and who needs mindfulness more than people who are suffering because people who are suffering with chronic illness, all different things, they really fuse with that identity, the pain, they're going through something really difficult. And even though the present moment may not be so pleasant, it really does offer a space to heal and just be and to defuse from all of the thoughts and the emotions and things that we're going through, including chronic pain and illness. So he made it pretty famous by studying it. And it's been studied a lot since then. A lot of research has been done. And that's really where it's been applied the most, I'd say, between the, you know, the Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts, um, John Kabat-Zinn, and then a number of others who really fell in love with mindfulness, saw how helpful it could be for therapy, and started to infuse it into therapy practices. And, you know, and also when Buddhist monks started to come here in the 60s and 70s, immigration laws changed. So there was a lot of people that emigrated from Asia and they opened up Buddhism centers. They started to teach college courses about Buddhism. 
and mindfulness and all of that started to pop up in a lot of places, especially college campuses. So that's also how it became pretty popular here from missionaries that brought it here and started teaching it. And it really resonated with people. And it was also, you know, at the time of the 60s and 70s, it was kind of counterculture and the opposite way of thinking in a lot of ways. And so people, you know, with the hippie movement and all of that, I think people really liked all of that, the meditation, mindfulness piece of it. So anyway, that's just the history of mindfulness. I just love it so much that I could talk about it. It might be not the most interesting to some people, but mindfulness, you can apply in any way. So I love mindfulness because people are doing it all the time. If you're washing your dishes and you're just noticing your five senses, that's mindfulness. You're feeling the warm water, you're smelling the soap, you're feeling the sponge on your hands. You're looking at the colors of the plates. That's using mindfulness. You're just grounding yourself in the present moment, non-judgmentally. And the idea is to just notice and observe thoughts and kind of just let them come in and let them go out. Like I talked about last week on the episode of Thought Diffusion, it's detaching from the thoughts, observing them, letting them come in, letting them go out, and then bringing yourself back to the present moment. So that could be noticing just your breath going in and out. It could be just noticing your feet and how they feel against the floor, how your butt feels on the seat you're sitting in right now, how the air feels against your face, the sun against your skin, the taste in your mouth. All of that is just noticing what's happening for you in the present moment. So it's a lot more simple than people think. And there's a popular quote that's like, simple, but not easy, right? It's not easy to do mindfulness or to practice it, but it is pretty simple. There's a cartoon of two monks. It might be in one of John Kabat-Zinn's books. And the two monks are sitting on a hill and one's looking at the other and says to him, so now what? And then the monk says, this is it. (laughs) You know, and I think that summarizes mindfulness. It's kind of the non-doing, as John Kabat-Zinn says. And my favorite book by him is Wherever You Go, There You Are. And I just love that book. It's so digestible and bite-sized. Like you can read 10 pages. That's like three chapters probably in that book. And it's so easy to read. It's just, you could really open it up to any chapter and just read it before work or something. It just puts you in a great mind frame or reading it before bed. I find it to be just so relaxing and grounding and helpful no matter what you're going through. And it just really resonates. There's also a ton of apps out there now that mindfulness is so popular. So Headspace I use and recommend. I haven't used it in a while, but they're great. They have a website and an app. There's also Calm, which is super popular. I haven't used that one myself, but that one looks good. They're always advertising to me on Instagram. And there's probably a billion others. You could also just go on YouTube and type in five-minute mindfulness exercise or 10-minute mindfulness exercise. And there's tons of scripts. People walk you through it. You can see if you like the sound of their voice, if you like their style. And there's active mindfulness where you go for a walk and just notice your feet and your shoes, notice the colors of the trees, the birds. So it doesn't have to be sitting down and closing your eyes. It can be actively walking around, looking at stuff. So I always say to people, if you are too anxious internally, where it would be kind of anxiety provoking to close your eyes and focus on your breathing, because oftentimes 
that can be a trigger. If you have trouble breathing, you feel like you can't get enough air, that would provoke more anxiety. Then I would say go for a walk or do something active for mindfulness or practice it while you're washing the dishes or taking a shower. But if you are kind of too stimulated or stressed with the external world, I think it's helpful to sit quietly and go inward, focus on your breathing, just to let the thoughts float by, let the air flow in and out, relaxing your muscles. So there's a lot of different scripts you can find online for these mindfulness exercises. So the action item of the week, it's related. Of course, I think practicing mindfulness is helpful. Even just a minute or two a day is super helpful. It's easy to forget. So the first action item of the week, I would say, is to piggyback mindfulness off of something you already do. So I've talked about this skill before of doing it as soon as you wake up in the morning, maybe when your alarm goes off and you don't get out of bed right away. You can just lay there and feel the sheets against your skin. Just notice the air coming in and out of your body. Notice the sunshine coming in through the window. And any thoughts that come in, just kind of let them go by and refocus your mind and your thoughts in the present moment. So that could be an easy one because you're already laying in bed, the alarm goes off, that's your signal to practice mindfulness. Another one could be when you're drinking your coffee in the morning downstairs, you're making a cup of coffee. It could be while you're brushing your teeth in the morning, something you already do automatically every day, you can attach it to that. It could be before you go to bed at night, brush your teeth to go to bed, come in your room, lay down in your bed, practice mindfulness. So that's one of the action items. The second one is more fun for me to give to you is to get a piece of paper and I want you just to write down a flow of your thoughts, just like a total stream of consciousness, unload it onto the piece of paper, any thoughts that come in your mind, write them down. You're not going to show anybody this, you know, don't worry or get self-conscious. You could burn it later. Like, don't worry about it. But I want you to write down just every honest thought that comes in your mind. You could write down like, Lindsay suggested I do this stupid exercise. This pen is running out of ink. It's really hot in here right now. Like anything that comes into your mind, I want you to write it down. And then next week on the podcast, I'm going to talk about what to do with that piece of paper of thoughts and what to look for and why we're doing that. Okay. So it's just a little teaser for the next part. I'm going to tell you next week. I don't want to tell you now because it will influence probably what you write down if you kind of know why we're doing that. (laughs) So that's a wrap for this podcast, everyone. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, save me to your library so you know every week when I come out with a new episode. You can rate and review us, please. It helps so much get the podcast out there, especially in these early days that we're trying to promote it so much. And I'm just so happy you all are here. I hope you have a fabulous week and I will talk to you all soon. 